Our reading this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 26, where we read, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hekelah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had come. Then David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, Abishai, his son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then said Abishai to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your lord, the lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my Lord the King hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, 
Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for every word, God, that you have condescended to speak to us, that we may know you, that we may hear you speak, Lord. And I pray today that your spirit would work through Pastor Dave, Lord, that he would speak your words, God, that we would hear you speaking through his sermon, that our hearts would be touched to know you more, God, to love you more, to know what you would have us understand from your word this day, God. I pray, work mightily, God, save by your word, Lord. Draw each of us to you by your word, Lord, and reveal yourself to us by your word, we pray. And God, I pray on this day, Lord, I pray for every mother in here, for all of our mothers, Lord, for our grandmothers, for everyone who's like a mother to somebody, God, how you reveal a self-sacrificing love is no clearer than in the love of a mother, God. How you reveal an unconditional love is no clearer than in the love of a mother, God. And I thank you for that. So I pray a special blessing on every mother you have called to this task, God, to reflect your kindness and your goodness, your wisdom, and your love, Lord, to all of us. Bless them abundantly today, God. Bless them mightily. And I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. At this time, I invite up Pastor Dave Howard to bring us the word. Hey, good morning. Uh, kind of wet my pants this morning, not out of nerves, I just didn't screw this on tight. I, just, I felt like I had to say that right away. Um, but uh, God be praised, I, you know, I, happy Mother's Day, I had that in my heart today. You know, thinking about my own mom and Lisa and what mothers do. So that, that is, uh, mothers, be blessed today. Be blessed, amen. All right, so uh, I, I know it was a long narrative, good morning. Um, if you have been with us, we've been going through Samuel, and um, if you recall, two weeks ago, uh, Joe Del Grande brought us through chapter 24, and um, I had Pastor Lee read 26 because it's a, a very uncanny parallel to both of them. They almost kind of seem exact, so much so that as I was preparing, I'm looking at 24 and I'm 26, you know, for what I would call um, pastoral preparatory expediency, I figured, let me ask Joe for his notes. You know what I mean? And then, you know, I'm thinking, I'm like, well, you know, at the personal story, when it gets to the supervisor part, I'll just change that guy's name to Mr. Smith as opposed to Mr. Johnson. This way, nobody should be the wiser. Was that, I, I, that's what I thought anyway. But actually, there are some nuances in... Uh, in this parallel account. And I, and I would like to go over those with you so we could see some things and, and take some things with us. So I want to give some context to this. You know, I'll, I'll use an old term. Da David has been on the lamb for some time. That's, that's a very 1940s term. He's been on the run. We're, we're talking years now. You know, uh, when we read Samuel, it kind of compresses this 
information, but when you think about it in real time, you know, this is like three or four Happy New Years ago that David has now been on the run. And to give that a little more context, if you've ever watched any of these shows with uh, Cold Case or FBI, these tracking shows, real-time shows, and they track people for years, and, and you know, they can only show, they'll show you a closed-circuit TV video, and the person's always got a hat on, or they're in a convenience store, they always got a collar up. They're always obscuring how they appear and they're always, always looking over their shoulder. They're moving constantly. They never stay in one place. That's the life that David is living now, you know? And the thing to realize this is he's not alone. He's accumulated some people along the way. He has basically what would qualify for as a militia of 600 soldiers, 600 committed guys that are saying, we're going with you. And you got to think further past that, right? If 600 men probably have their families too. So as they are on the lamb, on escape, living in the mountains, this is what David has under his umbrella. This is what David is contending with. And I think there's a weariness that comes with that, that I, every time I look over my shoulder, I have to worry about Saul. So the text starts right away with the Ziphites. Now we've seen the Ziphites before. They were in a previous chapter, and if you recall, the Ziphites come to Saul and say, hey man, we think David's up in our mountains, and we're willing to let you know where he's at. And if you recall, in that exchange, Saul says, hey, why don't you get a little more information? He was a little more conservative on that, on that exchange. Get, I, God bless you. Get a little more information. And when you get a more exact whereabouts, because that mountain region is vast, then by all means I'll go. But in this, you see how the heart of Saul has already shifted. Because the text says the Ziphites came, told them where David is, and guess what Saul did? He mobilized 3,000 men. He was itching. He did not vet it. He did not screen it. He mobilized 3,000 men. When the Gulf War was going on and they reached out to reservists, you get the call and it took three days, they say on an average, for people from all points to get to military bases. Right, three days. That's just to get there. It took another three days to kind of amass what they were doing in the war and how to kind of size them up for the war. And that's not yet getting on the scene. So you figure it took about a week, and in some cases a week and a half, to call to arms everyone, get them together, and get them dispatched. Here, Saul calls for 3,000 men. Get your stuff. We're going after David. And it's some, if you look, Gibeah, from where Saul is to Ziph, is some 30 miles. So here he is. We're, we're going 30 miles, guys. That's not going to be in a day. And we're not going to find him right away, but this is the mission. And so, you know, you can't just move 3,000 men quietly. So David gets word of this, 
and he sends out spies to verify. And I think he sent out spies for a few reasons. One, he's a soldier, it's the tactically sound thing to do. But the other reason is, man, I, the last time I was with Saul, that guy was crying, saying, I'm sorry. He said, you are more righteous than me, David. You have repaid me with good, and I have repaid you with evil. You have dealt with me well, and I have dealt with you in the worst way possible. And I think there was some authenticity to that confession, but David didn't entrust himself to it. And here he is, through spy information, finding out that, wow, here comes Saul and his men. So when David confirms that Saul's in the hills of Hakilah, verse 6 says this. It says, then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, and Abishai, the son of Zeruiah. Let, let's stop there. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah. Zeruiah is David's sister. You'll see that later. Abishai would be his nephew, just so we know who's who here. And he approaches these two guys and he says, who will go down with me to the camp of Saul? And I'm sure Ahimelech looked at Abishai and said, you got this one, right? Because we're going down to 3,000 people. I don't think I want that. But no, on the contrary, Abishai says, I will go. He is willing to go. And as we will see throughout Samuel further on, Abishai is the, he is the guy that, he's the ride or die guy. He's like, I need somebody by my side that's not going to hem and haw. He is that guy. So it says, verse 7, so David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping with the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. So just to get an idea, so that... Historians say what's typically set up like this is they, they call it an Arab circle, which means that all these troops are set up in a circular fashion if the terrain will allow, and at the center is where you will have your leadership. Usually the prince would be there or the king, the generals, and they are at the center. According to the text, <laughs> David and Abishai have made their way right to the head of Saul. So they've walked their way through 3,000 men, right to the head of Saul. And it's important to note, verse 12 says this. It says that God had put a deep sleep on everyone in that camp. And to understand the depth of the sleep, the same word is used when God put Adam to sleep to remove the rib. When God put Abraham to sleep to walk between those animals to establish a covenant. It is a deep, profound sleep. And while these guys are asleep, Abishai and David are having a conversation. And the conversation looks very similar to chapter 24. And he says in Abishai in verse 8, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of your spear, of, of the spear, and I will not strike twice. This is a soldier 
that sees opportunity. The spear is there. He's like, you will not even hear an exhale. I will be so efficient at this. And for all intent and purposes, when we look at this scene and we go back to 24 and we say, listen, just at the possibility that we got it wrong last time, just at the possibility that, yes, Saul backed into the cave to relieve himself, and yes, there we were, and we didn't make a move. But Abishai is basically saying, hey, man, here we are in the middle of 3,000 soldiers. This guy is dead asleep. Let me do the work. He's telling David, I will do this. I know that you do not want the guilt on your hands. I will do this. And it, you know, it, it brings to bear something. It, it brings to bear, how do you deal with a situation that seems to be the hand of God, but not to direct you in a certain way? Let me explain. Abishai is basically saying, listen, here is the one who haunts you. Here is his spear. I will take his spear and put it through his body. It's almost like a poetic justice. This is the spear that has gone over your head, stuck into the wall multiple times. This is God giving this enemy to you. It seems to make sense. It does. And you say, hey, you know, think about situations that we have all been in where, or situations, yeah, this is a better one, when, when someone says, because look, it's in the language of religious language, God has given. Let, let's go back to 24 for a second. 24 says this. 24 says, um, when, they, when Saul revealed himself in the cave, when he was in the cave and they saw him, he says, and they said to him, behold, I will give your, and remember, they said, remember God said, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. But look what it says. And you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. So when we come forward to this, it seems good to David to not put a hand on the anointed one of God. And he says that to Abishai. He's like, I will not... I know that everything situationally looks right. I know that you're using language. It's almost like when people say, you know, the Lord told me to tell you. And I'm like, that could be, because this is Abishai using the same language. But, you know, I'm, I'd like to verify that. How does David verify that? How does David look at a situation contextually that seems perfect that seems like, all right, listen, he backed into the cave, maybe an accident. This time, here we are in the middle of a camp, and everybody's dead asleep. And here I am before his spear. Why not? But here's the principles. David isn't kind of run by context. He's not being run by the situation. He's not saying, hey, this situation looks right, therefore God must be in it. Do you see how easy that is as a trap? This looks right, therefore God must be in it. No, David actually is run by principle. The principle of knowing that God is sovereign. That's his first principle. God is sovereign. And when you go right off of that principle, God has chosen Saul. 
God chose Saul. I didn't choose Saul. That is his choice. Now he has that, and he knows that God is sovereign. And I trust God. And I know God. And I respect God. I fear him. I revere him. I will not put my hand on what he has chosen. It's a very, very clear, clear picture. And I'm going to, if we go back, here's, here's actually what David says in verse 10. He says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. And he reiterates again, verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now, if David was shaky about making this pronouncement. If we go back to chapter 25, when Pastor Lee uh, taught us on, on Nabal, that Nabal situation, I don't know if you remember. Remember, uh, David and his men were providing protection for this merchant with his sheep, right? Sheep and, and goats and all of that. that. That's where you measured riches. And here he is providing kind of some protection for these guys. And at feast time, he says, hey, man, let's send, I'm going to send some guys down. Let's let them know what we've done. I'm sure he'll want to come correct and give us some wine and some supplies and some food just to, you know, because David is conscious of the men. David is conscious of the families. And what happens? If you remember, right, what does Nabal say? Get out of here, basically. He tells David's men to get lost. And those men come back and they report it to David. And what, is, what does David say? Hey, man, get your swords. We're going to work. <laughs> We're going to work. And, and David, basically, if I may use a vernacular, he's ready to go Brooklyn on these guys. He's about ready to go that, right? He's, he's ready to bring the street to them. And what happens in that situation? Abigail, the wife of Nabal, intercepts David through divine providence and brings the supplies and brings an apology and brings a, a, an ask for forgiveness and we learn subsequently, right, she tells Nabal this, hey, man, I, I, you know, I, I kind of cleaned up your mess. Nabal has a stroke. He subsequently dies. But here's the thing. Here's the verse. verse uh, chapter 25, verse 39. And I'm sure this was fresh in David's mind. It says, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. God kept me from doing wrong. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. So David has these things fresh in mind as he now looks at Saul. And he basically ends that conversation that they're having in the middle of, the, of all these guys sleeping. And he says, grab the spear, grab the water, we're leaving. And they leave. Now, they go to a safe area, and now David begins to yell out, as the text says, right? And David addresses his yelling to Abner, though it says that everybody got to hear. This is kind of, this was the, the cock-a-doo-doo-doo of the wake of the morning now, right? David is yelling, and he says to Abner, basically, hey, I think you're in the wrong line of work. 
He doesn't actually say that. He's, he's, uh, that's actually mild compared to what he says. He compares his lack of work ethic to not being a man. He goes, <laughs> you know, in, in a group of men, that's what we would do. We go right for the jugular. He does that. He goes right for the jugular. He says, you had one job, man, and you couldn't do that. That was to protect the king. And you failed. He says, because people have come in to destroy the king. And basically, in military language, he's like, you have suffered from a dereliction of duty, which even nowadays is punishable by death. And he says that. You should die for what you've done. You should absolutely die for what you've done. And he presents, I guess, at a distance where they could see the spear and the water, this little jar of water by Saul's head, basically to say that we were up close and personal. You have failed, Abner. What does that spear mean? The spear, just so you understand, the spear of Saul is, is almost like a king's scepter. It, it is this symbol of authority. And David now has it in his hand. And that jar of water, they say Saul would use to refresh himself, been removed this symbol of life been removed, really not by the hand of David, but providentially by God's hand, basically saying to Saul, Saul, I'm running things in this piece, and I will use David to show that. He is showing Saul who is the sovereign. So at this, Saul begins to get the crust out of his eyes. And it says, Saul recognized his voice in verse 17. Is this your voice, my son David? It's the same language as chapter 24. David answers, it is my voice, my Lord, O King. And he said, David asked the three questions he asked previously. Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands. He starts out with those questions, and now he says, he wants to now create a line now so that this is the argument he is now going to create. So he says now, he says, now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. This is the argument. And I, and I will say that this, so we know this is the final argument. Those two will never meet again. Those two will not have another conversation. I don't want to spoil it, but Saul's got a short time left. But this is the final argument that he's making, almost like a, a lawyer coming before for his final remarks. He says, now let, therefore let the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But, it, but if it is men... May they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. All right, let's break that down. A few things to note, right? Let, let's just go right with this. David has refused to put a hand on King Saul. King Saul is the anointed. David has refused to put a hand on him. He has not allowed anybody else to put a hand on King Saul. 
And with, <clears throat> with all who are attending this conversation now, him yelling through the valley at <clears throat> um, the king, and all who are hearing this, he has never accused the king. He doesn't say, this is how I feel. He doesn't say what his thoughts are. He says these two things. We know that he won't hurt him, and now he's faced with these two things. He says, either the Lord has stirred you up, or people have been whispering things in your ear that are influencing you. He doesn't put a blame on the king. And you say, well, what? He, he still, you, you see that there's still honor and respect even there because he knows who God is and that is God's anointed. And I'm thinking, wow, if we could only bring that to our, our political process, right? I mean, it is with the utmost respect that he treats King Saul. But let's look at the two things. He says, either the Lord has stirred you up against me. That's the first part. And this is a tough one, right? Listen to what he's saying. He's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going through all this suffering. I'm, I'm out here in the woods. Because God has done it. That, that's something we Christians have a hard time with. I, I, I'm, I'm going to actually, let, let me hold the flag on it, and you guys could follow me. I, I don't want conflict. I don't want pain. I don't want suffering. And here he's saying that maybe God's hand is causing all of those things. And I know that when we pray, we're so quick to pray, oh, God, relieve us of this. Relieve us of this. Uh, uh, just take, make this situation right. Oh, take away the pandemic. Oh, take this away. Change this person. Make this happen. Maybe the prayer should be, if there's something for me to learn here, don't let it pass until I get it. Don't give me, and I'll, I'll, I'm thinking of Joe, the expedient way out of this. If there is suffering that you are putting upon me, before I look for the exit sign, Lord, what is it that I need to know before this thing passes? Before I ask you to take it away from me, what is it that I need to know? What sin is in my life that maybe I'm not addressing? Because I think I'm so cool with everything. Maybe there's something in there, something in the current that I'm missing. That's a tough one. He said, maybe the Lord has put you against me. And then he turns it and he says, maybe there's something else. Maybe the men have turned you against me. And that goes back to chapter 24. He said, maybe these men are saying evil things. Verse 19, but if it is the men, let them be cursed. And listen to what he says. He says, for... They have driven me out this day, saying that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go to the... What does this mean? David longs... Dave, listen to me. David longs to be on, in the heritage, the promised land given, the promised land given to Abraham. On, on Canaan, he longs for that is the heritage of the Jewish people, and it is like, it's like a salve for him, that I would be on the land of our people that you, God, have appointed, that I would be on the land of the temple of the true God. 
that I would be on the land of the people, of the temple, of the true God, that I would be a part of that. It's almost like saying, man, that, that I would be a part of this fellowship, that I would protect this at all costs, that if something's not happening right in the church, that I would say, no, let that not be so, that this is, this is our heritage, this is, this is the sacred land of ours. And David is saying, listen, instead they're putting me out into the wilderness to other lands. And remember, if you are not on the land of the true God, you're in other lands which were pagan nations. And that's why he's saying, they're sending me out to go look at other gods. And we have seen that in the history of Israel. They hang out with these pagan nations. They take on their customs and etc. He says, please don't let that be. He's like, don't let my blood fall on soil that is not the land of my heritage. And then he now points to Saul in reason. He says, listen, you have come out with a hunting team for partridges, and I am an insignificant flea. He's like, Saul, you are putting way too much attention on someone that don't matter. He, David is taking this humble seat. I don't matter, man. I'm a flea. He's the same language he used last time. I'm a flea. He's like, you, the, the partridge, just so you can understand the context of that, partridges in that part of the world are birds that fly very little, run a lot. They would send hunting teams to get them, and what they would do is the birds would kind of fly a little, and then they'd end up running. They wouldn't fly anymore. They'd run from cover to cover. And the hunting teams would go, and eventually the partridge would get tired. And they just kind of club it on the head. And here David is saying, you know, you, you got all these people out. Perhaps he's wondering, maybe eventually I will get tired, and I can't run anymore. But I, I want you to see something, and, and this is probably the, the guts of this. David does not beg Saul for his life. In no time does David ever say, please spare me, Saul. David continually uses the context of God as the controller of all things. So when he makes his appeal, he's constantly making his appeal to God. He's like, God, he says, <laughs> he says the Lord rewards every man for righteousness and faithfulness. He's not talking to Saul now. He's, this is about God. The Lord gave you into my hand today. The Lord did that. I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointing. I wouldn't do it. Saul's life, and he tells him, was precious to David. And he's, David is like, God, this life is yours. It's precious to you. And all David's appeal is this, God, may my life be as precious to you as Saul's life is to me. It's your context. And uh, when Saul speaks here, you're going to notice some differences. Saul no longer has tears in his eyes. It's kind of like a downgrade. Yeah, Turned down the notch, the notch too, too on his um, on his sorriness, on his repentance. He does not 
say that. He says he sinned. And he says, again, talks about David's righteousness. But there is nothing here that says, I have repented of heart. And I, I think there's something I, I, that I want to leave you guys with. It's clear. It's, it should be clear to us that the mercy of God has preserved Saul's life up to this point. God's mercy has preserved uh, Saul's life. And, and how do I say that? Let's, let's just give it a quick bullet point context. Listen, when you go relieve yourself in the cave, right, and David and his whole posse are on the back of the cave, and you're the reason that they're living in caves, and all they do is cut a piece of your robe off, I would call that mercy. When you're sleeping in camp, feeling like I am protected by 3,000 men, and David comes right up to your head, takes your spear, and takes your water right where you lay, and does not take your life, I would call that mercy. And I, I think it's important for us to understand what mercy is, right? Mercy is just not just this thing that kind of floats in the air. We don't just have mercy, even though we, we use the word um, freely. <clears throat> mercy is in light of God's holiness, in light of his justice, in light of his righteousness, in light of his omnipotence, in light of his wrath. He chooses to give us mercy when we should get all of those other things. That's mercy. We as Christians here, we're not being chased by Saul, but we have to understand what mercy really is. That in light of all of those things, that the wrath, that that righteous hammer should come down right on the top of my head and crush me down to the soles of my feet. Gives me mercy. Mercy that I don't deserve, mercy that I cannot earn, mercy that I cannot conjure up. It is his mercy. It is his choice. Romans 9.22 says it this way. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles. It is a reflection of God's glory that he gives us mercy when we deserve everything but mercy. He says, I, I, this is a I want to show you my glory in my mercy. And that we have experienced such mercy reveals what? The kindness of God. And what should the kindness of God do? Should lead us to repentance, right? That's what Romans said. But here we are with Saul. I don't know about you. I haven't read ahead. I'm not getting the feeling of him being led to repentance him being led to, to view the mercy that has been given to him to say that well, this is a kindness of God and it, should, it has a direction and it has a purpose. Mercy does. It has both direction and it has both purpose. And I'm sure, listen, I, I'm sure everybody here has no idea 
of what God showers us with in mercy. We, we have no idea. I mean, we have the visible idea, but I think there's a whole other idea of mercy that God's like, oh, you guys have really no idea, do you? Of the suffering that he has taken on on our behalf. This is Saul's confession. I have sinned. I won't harm you. I've acted foolishly. I made a great mistake. He cried. He wept aloud. He told David he was more righteous than he was. He was repaying David with evil. He said, David, you repaid me with good. He showed emotion. He showed sorrow. He showed remorse. He showed regret. None of these things are wrong. But he showed no repentance. And it's easy to say, well, I had this discussion the other day. I, I will tell you this. Repentance always shows some kind of action. It shows a change. It absolutely shows a change. What if I'm struggling with sin? Yes, you can be struggling with sin. Absolutely. But let me put it to you this way. Let me give you a context. A wife who accepts the husband back who has cheated, and now the husband comes back and says, I repent. Does that wife have an expectancy that you will not go back into the streets? Repentance looks for action. It does. It always does. It always does. That action did not follow Saul. Hopefully, it, it, it follows us. 2 Corinthians 7.11 says this, For we see what earnest, earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. That's the first stage. A godly grief. A grief that says, I have violated not just David, not just the wife, not just my friend. I have violated God and his order. I have got violated God and his righteousness. I have violated him. Here's godly grief. And what is it produced in you? But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, to show you that I am not anything like I used to be. I want to show you that. I want the opportunity to show you that. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal. Punishment. I will not put anybody through what I've put through, uh, people through again. I won't do that. Saul would say to himself, I would not do this to you, David, ever. There is repentance. Yeah, and it cost. At every point, he says, Paul, in this scripture says, at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Lamentations 3.22 regarding mercy. We should all be familiar with this because there's songs about it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. They are new every morning. I, we live in a hurried world. It's very easy to glance over the mercies of God. The mercies of God don't stop at salvation. They don't stop at the cross. They continue to beckon us, and they are new every single morning. But I will tell you this, and I know we know that as Christians, but I will tell you that there's a point where you no longer hear the mercy of God. Not that the mercy stops. 
And I'm not talking about, oh, yeah, I know, when I die, I'm not going to know God's mercy. No, 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 no. Because we see here with Saul that his heart has become hard. At one point, he listened to Samuel intently to know what God's direction was for him. And here he is now basically giving God who has shown him mercy, who has put an operative in his camp and spared his life, and it's really come down to a shoulder shrug. There will be a point where your heart no longer receives mercy because your own sin becomes callous. You don't have to die to have that rejection come upon you. You don't have to wait till the grave for that. And we're watching it here, and I love the scripture shows us every side, every part. So I implore us as brothers and sisters, let us not forsake that mercy. Because the more I embrace that mercy, the easier it is for me to give it away. The more I am in, in, in trance with God's mercy, the more easy it is for me to freely give it away. And the more I turn away from his mercy, the more I just have myself to deal with. And I'm a sinful creature, full of sin, full of rebellion, full of self. May God move that word in your hearts today. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for this day. Thank you for the mercy of a new day. Thank you for breath and sunshine. Thank you, as Lee said, for mothers who have blessed us. Thank you for brothers and sisters who encourage us, who correct us. Thank you that we have this place of heritage, the church, that reaches out, that is supposed to be the light on the hill, that is a, at the very least has gotten us here. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you. Thank you for the richness of your mercy. Thank you for the newness that comes every morning through your mercy. Thank you that you have pulled us out of areas just like Saul. May we never overlook, Father. I ask that you would quicken this word in every person here, Father, and that if there is one in a backslidden state, Father, that they would come, come to the elders, yes. come to another brother, Lord. Stir the hearts of men. Yes. In Jesus' name. Amen.